Hello, and thank you for downloading the 9% event podcast. The following recording took place at 68 Middle Street in Brighton on the 28th of March. There are around 50 women in the room, and they have just finished 45 minutes of smart networking, where they were matched with others who met their networking objectives. They've also just enjoyed several gin and tonics, courtesy of the fantastic Brighton Gin, who did gin sampling on the evening. You will now hear an introduction from me, Georgina, followed by Chrissy Totty, who has headed up innovation teams at London's leading media agencies, working on groundbreaking campaigns for Burberry, 20th Century Fox and BMW, amongst others. She is the winner of many awards, including the Campaign and IPA Woman of Tomorrow, the Media Week 30 Under 30 and a Can Gold Lion. She will be giving her top five tips on innovation. You will also hear from Pamela McKellar, founder of the hugely successful Ginger Man Restaurant Group, known as much for their award-winning food as their innovative and stylish interior design. Finally, you'll hear from Cathy Caton, the founder of Brighton Gin, on how she went from distilling gin in her kitchen, with a recipe from the internet and a still from eBay, to running an iconic Brighton brand that has seen a turnover of £500,000 in its third year. So why not pour yourself a gin and tonic, sit back and enjoy these fascinating talks from some seriously inspirational women. Thank you so much for coming tonight, everybody. I'm really, really excited to have you all here. I'm so excited that I'm going to try and speak slowly. I might race through it. I'll do my best not to. Um, so thank you all for coming to the first 9% event. I really hope that you all enjoy the networking. Um, a few words. I'm going to do a couple of words of introduction, then we'll crack straight on with the speakers. Um, the 9% is the current UK gender pay gap. Now, obviously, that varies across industries. Some are more, some are less. Uh, the BBC for one so uh, this is why I didn't make the event mixed because I feel there's a real need for more community more support and more empowerment for women um, I'm going to tell you a little story about what happened when I approached because this is the first of a series and I've been approaching speakers for a little while about 70% of the people, I, the women I approached all said to me oh I don't know if I can do that and I was like I think you can um, <laughs> And I think that can be a very typically female response. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can stand up in front of a lot of people and speak. Um, when actually every person that I've spoken to, every woman that I've approached, has got such an amazing career and story to tell that why wouldn't you share that with other people? Um, I think there's a real need for inspirational women setting examples of how gender, industry or expectation should not hinder <coughs> the achievement of our goals and our dreams. Um, there's a very popular phrase that says you cannot be what you cannot see and so I would like everybody to see how amazing these women are doing and how amazingly you can all do. Uh, finally, <laughs> I read a study about how women talk about successes um, and it says that women tend to use we and us when they're talking about their successes and I when they're talking about failures, whereas men are the other way around. So. <laughs> everyone to leave here with a success story that begins with I and a step towards gender equality in the workplace that begins with all of us. So without further ado we're going to crack on with the speakers. Uh, we're going to start with Chrissy. Chrissy and I used to work together at Visium. Uh, she is the winner of many awards uh, which you will all have seen on the ticket link, very impressive. She's the founder of two very successful startups and she's a very inspirational good egg and I'm very proud to call her a friend as well. So without further ado, Chrissy. Oh, 
Right, okay, so where do I start? So Georgina came um, to me and asked me to talk about innovation. And innovation is something I'm really passionate about, but it's also something that I feel is the most overused word potentially in all business magazines and uh, in the media right now. So I kind of have this love-hate relationship with the word innovation, but the principles behind it I absolutely love. So what I wanted to talk about, um, just to you guys, is to share that my love of innovation Innovation is not a job title, it's not a department, it's not a word you just associate with technology. Innovation is a mindset and it's actually a way of looking at your life and solving problems in a really different way. So I wanted to share kind of my definition of innovation in a way that hopefully everyone can relate to. It doesn't matter whether you work for yourself, work for a company, just um, something that kind of everyone can apply in their life. And then I wanted to share five things I've learned along the way um, five practical tips to help you all be more innovative in whatever way you want. So um, I wanted to start with the, my definition of innovation. So if you go on Google, and this is like the business equivalent of once upon a time if you start your talk with a definition. So I, I'm going straight in with the cliche because I couldn't think of anything else. Um, so the definition of innovation, loads of different definitions, but my definition is really simple. It is doing something that is new and different that adds value. So I need to stress that's doing something new and different that adds value. There's a couple of parts to that, and most people zoom right in on new and different. So most people go straight into new, different, oh yeah, that's technology, that's apps, that's AI, that's drones, that's AR, that's VR. No, 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 no. New and different does not have to be a technology. It actually can be a different way of thinking, can be a way of working. It can be something that changes what it was before. So new and different doesn't have to be technology. So my definition of innovation, new and different, is just new and different, it's not technology. But let's not get caught up in that. The most important things for me is the word doing and adding value. So the word doing is something that often is underestimated. Um, so having uh, run innovation teams, worked at big innovation consultancy, now running my own business, the biggest thing about innovation is actually the doing part. There are shitloads of people online talking about innovation, using buzzwords, writing articles. Um, if you really want a classic example of someone talking about innovation, you can Google this guy, Shingy, who calls himself a, a digital prophet. He's a classic guy who's never done anything, and he's talked the talk and never walked the walk. So for me, doing innovation, not just saying you're going to do something, but actually delivering it is really critical, because if it hasn't happened, you haven't innovated. So doing something, and then adding value. This is the, the really human bit for me. So this is often the thing that gets lost when people talk about innovation, is the impact it has, the difference it makes. Um, and when I think about adding value, for me that means starting with the problem and working backwards, not starting with a technology or a shiny thing. So that's kind of my definition of innovation. Make it happen, don't just think technology, and start with really thinking about why. Why am I doing this? What's the problem I'm solving? So that's kind of my working definition, and that's the definition that I've kind of really formed over the years. And I, I, I don't want to go into my like, rather long 15-year <laughs> career because it will take a lot more than 15 minutes. But um, what I wanted to share was really five practical tips and a couple of examples of how I've applied them. Uh, hopefully you can see how it applies to you, and, and you can quiz me afterwards if you need more info. So, 
Um, the five tips I'm going to share, um, and I'll save them up front now in case I miss one out and you can remind me, because I've had two lovely gins and this might affect it. So the first tip I wanted to share is when it comes to being innovative, um, you need to act like a five-year-old, and I'll explain what that means. The second tip is you need to be really expansive with where you get your inspiration from. The third tip is sweat the small stuff. Really think about all the details, not just the big idea. Um, the fourth tip is technology is a means, not an end goal. So it's a way you can achieve something, not the thing you're trying to achieve. And then the fifth tip is innovation works a little bit like an equation. If you're asking yourself to do something new, you need to be prepared to not do something else. And it's the same if you're thinking about consumers or in your business. You're going to bring loads of new stuff in. What are you going to cut from people's time? Uh, so it really works like an equation. So let's start with that first one. Like, If you're going to be innovative, be a five-year-old. And um, I don't know if anyone's met any five-year-olds has got five-year-olds, but um, what I don't mean is like get crayons out and write on the wall, um, although that, I often do that in my job. Um, what I really mean is ask why. So that annoying five-year-old is going, but why? But why? So you're like, just don't do that. But why? Look, I said don't do that because we're going to be late. But why? And it's that process of questioning that you can actually apply in everything. And I, I really do this. I'm, I work, uh, currently I run a consultancy called The Big Things. And I work with a lot of startups and fast growth companies. They're moving really fast and they often don't have time to think things through. So when I meet them for the first time, um, they will often say to me, yeah, yeah, we need you to do this brand thing. or We, we, we haven't really worked out why we, people aren't using us for a second time. And I'm like, okay, so why are you asking me to do that? Okay, why is that important to your business? What difference will it make? Okay, so if we achieve that, why will it make a difference in a year's time? And I literally have basically a test. If I can ask why five times and they've got an answer, they've definitely thought it through. Um, if I can ask why three times and they've got an answer, they've kind of thought it through and there's something there. If I ask why once and they go off some vague rambling story, then they really haven't thought it through and then I need to help them do that. So um, be like a five-year-old and ask why. And the other thing five-year-olds are brilliant at doing is um, saying things in a really simple, clear way. They really tell you no when they mean it. So be a five-year-old by not using clever business jargon that you read in the Harvard Business Review website but you're not really sure what it means. And there is a ton of jargon out there. Do not feel like you need to use it. So one of the most powerful things I've found when I'm responding to briefs, and I might be competing against really big consultancies, is I use absolutely no jargon, and I do a one-page response. And the reason I don't use jargon, and the reason I keep it to a page, is it shows a lot more thought and time went into it if you can keep an answer succinct than writing 50 pages of rubbish. So uh, be like a five-year-old, keep it short and sweet, and uh, not necessarily sweet, but, but brutally honest, and always ask why. Um, my second tip is be expansive. Um, and I love the word expansive because it kind of reminds me of the universe always expanding, and I'm a bit of a sci-fi geek. But what I mean by being expansive where, about where you get your inspiration from is not uh, <laughs> doing the same thing every day. So, whether you've kind of got a problem in your life that you're just not sure how to get out of a rut or a problem in your business and you're kind of like, I don't really know where the answer's going to come from. 
Or it could be you work in a company and you're being asked to do the same thing. Challenge yourself to look at really diverse sources of inspiration. Like, I describe myself as a magpie. Um, I really love podcasts, but I don't just listen to one type of podcast. I randomly click follow, and I really do this, on all sorts of different podcasts and try them all out. Um, Google searches. I often go to the third page and just click on the middle link just to see where it takes me. Um, I like learn. Um, uh, I used to work at this really nutty uh, innovation consultancy that um, used to say, "Go out for a walk and get inspiration from the world around you." And I actually do that. Like, take a different route to work, take a different um, sort of route to school, and think about something a little bit differently. Take inspiration from the world around you. And the reason that will make you innovative is if you read and say the same stuff everybody says, you'll only look at the world in the same way. It's like the definition of madness, right? Doing the same thing over and over again. The only way you break that cycle is to force yourself to be expansive, expose yourself to different people, different environments, different sources of inspiration, different points of view, and you will start to see the world differently. And I really, I feel like in a, in a world of Facebook and Twitter and the echo chamber of stuff, we need to work even harder to make sure that we're hearing different points of view and meeting new people. And I think events like this tonight are a brilliant way to do that. So you're kind of already there on, on that tip. Um, so the third tip was sweat the small stuff. Um, so I talked at the beginning in my definition that doing something is often the hardest bit. Um, and I used to work at a media agency with Georgina. And the, a media agency is a, a company that buys and sells um, buys media space on the behalf of clients so basically not making the ads but deciding where they go and of course like what the client wants to know from the media agency is who the audience is how much should we spend on the different tv and facebook ads and that kind of thing but of course i i never used to answer that i used to go off on tangents and i used to come up with ideas for yeah well i've been thinking about this and i think you should do this in your store and i've got this idea for packaging and um, I was always suggesting stuff that wasn't at all in our remit. And then I was always disappointed that none of it ever happened. Despite the client in the meeting going, oh yeah, it's a brilliant idea, yeah, yeah, we'll definitely do that. And then they'd take, take the idea away and they'd go back to the real world of their office and it would never happen. And the thing I learned, and it took me a long time to learn this, is that making stuff happen is actually really hard. And... Um, <coughs> Uh, I think only now when I work in the consultancy, like where I actually go into businesses and I work with lots of different departments, do I see how hard it is to make stuff happen? Because you've got not only like loads of politics, you've also got loads of different people, different opinions, you've got questions over where budget comes from. So when I say sweat the small stuff, if you've got a brilliant idea and you want to take it to your boss, or you want to take it to someone and get investment for it, or you want to convince someone about this amazing thing, the best way to convince them is to put yourself in their shoes and think about all the things that they would worry about. And if you can sweat all those details, like how is this going to, where's the budget going to come from, and how am I going to win over the, their boss and their boss, and what are their boss worried about that I need to think about, if you can sweat the small stuff, suddenly you're not just pitching a pie-in-the-sky idea, you're actually pitching a really well-thought-through solution. Okay, so the fourth tip, um, technology is a means, not an end. Um, so I want you guys to imagine it's summer, and I know that's a bit of a stretch. Okay, so it's, it's warm, okay, and it's, you've just finished work early on a Friday, 
getting with me. Um, and you're meeting some friends at the station. That's where everyone's coming in. You're all meeting there. Now, imagine you haven't planned really where you're going to go, and you're like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. And imagine you see a digital billboard right outside the station telling you that five minutes walk away, there's plenty of space in the beer garden at the Dog and Duck to have a pims in the sunshine. And it's that warm summer evening, and you're like, oh, let's go, how about Dog and Duck? Pims? Great, let's go. Um, now that is actually a campaign, um, the uh, project I worked on with um, Diageo, and there was a huge amount of technology that went into that, and we won a Cannes Lion for innovation for that project. But what was important in that whole thing was not the finding the startup with loads of cool sensor technology we could install in pubs, neither was it the amazing software that, that we could like, show ads in real time depending on how hot it was and the time of day and the location. No, that wasn't what won the award. What won the award was the insight, the human insight, that actually people want to go for a drink on a Friday and actually when it's sunny, knowing where you can actually get a drink outside is a fundamental problem. And this was in London, so you just never know. You walk all the way there, beer garden's full, and you, you just wouldn't know. So for me, like what was really powerful about the campaign was not the technology, that isn't why it was so good. What was really good was the insight. So technology is a means, not an end. So really, if you're thinking about solving a problem, really understand what it is that you're solving and like the human behavior, like why is that gonna make a difference? Why is it gonna sell more PIMS or more gin um, or whatever you guys uh, are working on? So really think about the insight behind it and don't start with the technology. As I said, start with the problem and it will really take you to a different place. Um, and then my final tip uh, was talking about innovation as an equation. So um, used to work at this really massive global agency, like 35,000 employees. And there were, within this agency, there were loads of different companies. It was ginormous. You had like so many layers. <clears throat> and uh, everyone was coming up with new initiatives all the time. So HR would bring in, yay, we've got a new uh, benefit software you all need to use. And then someone else would come up with a, yeah, we've got a new timesheet software. And then finance would go, yeah, we've got a new expenses software. And then the MD would be like, I want you guys to all report in a different way. And basically all of this was being bombarded all the time. And I really sat there going, literally every week we're being asked to do something different. And at no point is somebody saying, you know what, we don't want you to do this anymore. You don't have to do this anymore. So if you've got a team and you want them to be more innovative, innovation takes loads of effort because it's doing something for the first time. You can't just Google, how do I do this? There won't necessarily be the answer. So when you're doing something for the first time, it will take longer, it will be harder, um, it will take more like resource and effort to, to make it happen. So like, give people time for that. So take away other stuff in their work life or in your work life that would mean you can focus on the innovative thing. Um, and I, I feel like I see this all the time now. So like my personal philosophy now, I run, run my own thing, is I don't do internal meetings. I think meetings are like the bane of my life. It sucks energy out of me. I just always leave them feeling like empty and dead inside. I never leave meetings going, <laughs> we've achieved so much. Because uh, it tends to be meetings, a lot of meetings are updates. Like you go, oh, team meeting, let's all have an update and talk about 
what we've all been doing. And it, it sounds great. The agenda sounds great. The you know, team meeting sounds great. Are there better ways of doing that? Could you save that hour by actually just going around and talking to ev individually, everybody, for 10 minutes? So it's still an hour of your time, but it's 10 minutes of everybody else's. And start thinking about it like that. Because although innovation, it doesn't need to be technology and it doesn't need to have a pound sign next to it, it always has a cost. So it always has a cost in terms of time, mental effort. Like, I, I think about this in terms of, if I'm trying to start a new healthy habit, like going running more, I don't say to myself, right, I'm gonna go running more and I'm gonna cook really healthy veggie food in the evening and I'm gonna learn a new language and I'm gonna, um, oh, I don't know, start, start painting. I don't ever say that to myself because I know that all of those things are an innovation in my life. Like, I don't cook veggie food, I can't paint, I can't speak another language, but I know that all of that would take a lot of mental energy. So I actually start myself really small goals that I can achieve, and I recognise, you know what, if I'm going to cook veggie food, I'm not going to ask myself to go to the gym as well in the evening. That's never going to happen. So take away stuff to allow innovation to have space and time to happen. So, um, just to, to recap, so I talked about innovation as a mindset, it's something that everyone can have and you can apply it in your day-to-day -day life, I just gave an example there, like trying to be more healthy or expand your horizons, um, or you can apply it in the workplace. I feel like for me, without innovation, the world stands still. So, if everyone leaves this room with a little bit more hunger to change things, then I'll be really happy, because the world needs a lot of changing right now. Um, and in terms of sort of thinking about innovation and trying to do it in your lives and in your work life, um, be like a five-year-old, always ask why, <coughs> cut the jargon, keep it short and simple. Be expansive, challenge yourself to get new inspiration. Um, sweat the small stuff, really think things through. Don't just get too excited by a big idea, work it out. And that will really make the difference between whether it will happen. Um, technology is a means, not an end. I mean, I'm a complete... I love technology, I'm a complete sci-fi geek, but I never start by talking about technology, I always start by talking about human beings. And the fifth thing is make space for innovation, it's an equation, there's a plus and a minus. You want people to do new stuff, take away old stuff. Um, and that's it. Mm. Thank you so much, Chrissy. that was amazing. Um, so now we're moving on to Pamela. Um, Pamela is the co-owner and the founder of the Ginger Man Group. I'm sure a lot of you will have eaten at her restaurants, um, which are just as well known for their high quality of food as their interior design. So, um, to you, Pamela. So, apologies to everyone, because this is I'm one of the people who doesn't do things like this. <laughs> so, I got my 12-year-old daughter to do this last night, <laughs> and then I had to email it, and I found out, how do I email it over? It's too big. So, but luckily, there was a lovely 20-year-old at work that knew exactly how to do it, and, and it was all done. So I am the person that doesn't do this, uh, so apologies in advance. My story starts on the, in New York. So I um, actually know it starts in Brighton. I was 17 where, when I met my husband, now Ben, and um, I was at Basvik, doing really badly at my A-levels. And on the day my A-levels were due to come out, I booked a really early flight to Heathrow to New York. So mum was driving me to the airport, going, oh, such a shame we can't get your results together. I'm thinking, no, it's not. <laughs> and so I'm on that plane, leaving, uh, and obviously they were awful, and uh, head to New York. So I do 
three months, in, oh, three weeks holiday in New York, ended up staying for a year, had to keep flying back for my visa, um, but stayed there, worked in restaurants in New York with Ben, and I was 18 at the time, 18, 19, and I'd never worked in a restaurant before, and now I'm working in a New York restaurant where they want everything yesterday, and it's terrifying, and I go into work on the first day, and Ben goes, whatever happens, be nice to the chef. So I go in, find the chef, go in early, make him coffee, bring him water, and was just trying to be as nice to him as possible. And that has been a great lesson for me because it's very hard to shout at someone who's nice and, uh, and, and dealing with customers who are sometimes really angry. And it might not be that they've had a bad meal. It might be that they actually hate their husband. And, <laughs> and they've had to sit with him for the last hour. And, and then they're taking it out on you because the steak's awful. Uh, and if you're smiling and saying, I'm really sorry. And our, my saying at work is kill them with kindness. It's very hard to be horrible to someone who's being nice to you. So we... We kind of learnt that, I kind of learnt that along the way. Um, so, oh sorry, we need to skip another one. But this is Ben and I in New York, really young. <laughs> at New Year's Eve in New York. Well, I couldn't drink, but I was lucky in nearly every restaurant owner in, in Manhattan, so I was having sneaky drinks because I was 21. <laughs> and then in the next one, so in 1998, um, we, came, so we came back from New York, and on the way back, um, Ben said, I want to set up a restaurant. And, and I was like, okay. Um, and he had a business partner. And I was like, fine, you open a restaurant. I'm going to get a proper job. And uh, I really fancied myself in an office with a desk. And so his business partner pulled out. And I very naively kind of put my hand up and said, I can do this. I've been waiting for the last year. I'll be the front of house. So we opened this restaurant. I was 20. And, um, and in April, it will be 20 years since we've had the restaurant, um, which is quite, a, quite an achievement in restaurant business because they, they go bust really easily. And uh, we've been trying very hard for them not to go bust, but it, it, we've kind of grown over the years. This is Dave, the first person we employed, who we're still friends with, which is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and then we just slowly started growing. So in 2004, this was our most important opening because... Somebody approached us and said, can you open a restaurant in a basement of a hotel? And the, we learned so much from this because we didn't have to put the money into it. They set the restaurant up and we went in and paid rent. And in doing that, we learned so, so much. Uh, so that was a really, really good learning curve for us. We had it for four years because in the end, it became a real hassle working with another business. Mm. They, they were selling a glass of champagne upstairs for £2 more than we were selling it downstairs. And there was always this conflict with the customers. Uh, and then we slowly, once we got the confidence from there, we quite quickly moved Ginger Pig in 2006, and then we moved again um, to The Fox in 2008 and The Dog in 2010. Um, so we did lots and lots of openings, and in that time our staff grew from one employee, probably around this stage about 60, so, and having very small children at the time as well. So we had a lot going on at this stage. So from 2010 to 2017, um, I can't remember what's on the next one. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, we, we basically, um, we, built, we bought the businesses. We had a recession that just happened. 2008, the recession started. And the big breweries were doing really badly and they were selling properties. So we had an opportunity to start buying freeholds. So even though we weren't open and expanding more businesses, we were getting our business in a really good shape. So we were borrowing money when most people were too scared to borrow money. 
and we were uh, we bought the dog first and then once we had the dog we borrowed on that to get the fox and then we finally the last one we got which is the one we wanted the most was a pig and above the pig was two floors and it was 20 rooms with bathrooms at the end of the corridor. They were the worst, worst letting rooms ever known. And we held on to these grotty rooms for like eight years, waiting to get it. And then when we finally got it uh, in 2017 or 2016, we started doing, um, we, started, we started a half million pound project where we designed rooms, said architects, but we did the interiors, we designed them, and our whole brief for them was really luxurious beds really lovely bathrooms, really lovely showers, you know, it's, it's kind of a boutique hotel, but it's a pub with rooms, we're not doing room service, but we're just doing affordable luxury, to get a room around £100 a night, midweek, that, that was the whole market we were going for, and then after that, where are we, oh yes, two weeks ago, so this is quite recent, we've just been to the downstairs, and again, this project with the architects, they said, it's probably a six week build, and I thought, like, we can't close the downstairs for six weeks. We've got hotel rooms above. We can't afford to do that. <coughs> and we managed to get it done in 11 days. So we only closed <laughs> for one weekend. And <coughs> it was on the building site at 7 o'clock every morning till God knows what time in the evenings. And these amazing builders kind of kept going, kept going till what, 1 in the morning some nights. <coughs> and we did. We got it done. And it looks amazing. We're so pleased how it's turned out. Um, and again, with the rooms, we've had like, amazing success. We were in Condé Nassau next month, but we've been in the Times Top 100 rooms. Uh, we've been in The Guardian, I think it was on there. The Telegraph did a fantastic review. And this is a small little business with, with no, um, no big PR company. Like, we haven't paid £20 <coughs> for a London PR company to promote us. Um, we've got a, a, a lovely lady who does a day a week and with us, you know, so it's like there was no money spent on the PR, but we got PR that you, you couldn't really dream of, really. And, and the main thing about this whole talk, which, um, which really did, I found interesting, is we were talking about wages and um, uh, people we employ. So now we're, this is last payroll, we were 113 people. Uh, and this does go up and down on whether we've got part-time people or not. For a predominantly male industry, we've got quite a few women, so that, that's quite good. So we're quite pleased, you know, it's around that figure, 60-40 roughly. Most of the men are in the kitchen. It's, at the moment, we only employ two women in the kitchen. Um, we've had really amazing women over the years, but there's just not many. There's not many women that go into catering, into kitchens, and uh, the ones we get are amazing. And they calm the whole kitchen down. There's just, there's just less swearing. There's less, you know, the testosterone is too. It's a nicer environment. Uh, and when we do get the women, they, they tend to stay for quite a long time. It's not they don't. There's not a high turnover of staff. And then on our management, we're doing really well with women. We've got seven out of eleven are female. Um, and I was going through past managers and stuff. And what we tend to not do well is with management is we lose them at maternity. So um, when they go to have babies, obviously they've got the job when they come back, but there's not really many women that want to take a job that they finish work at one in the morning and they're up with a baby at five. <laughs> so it's, we do lose them then. And they tend to um, want to do like supervisor shifts or do three a week or go part-time and stay in the company. And one of those ladies who went part-time, stayed in the company, her, her littlest has gone to school now, and she's now taken a general manager's position in one of our sites. So they kind of st we stay with us <coughs> and then come back up when they want to. 
Uh, or we've got another manager that <coughs> left management but now works on our accounts team. So we kind of try to move them around if they want to, but uh, lots of times they, they don't. And, and the other thing is the pay gap. And this is what I've been finding fascinating, reading all about, because it shocked me, it really shocked me, because I haven't worked in many companies. I'm, I'm practically unemployable, actually. I, I just worked for one, per well, one company, my company. So um, I really, really struggled with this. I was like, how can a woman earn less than a man doing the same job? And, and I just I couldn't understand how that, how that happened. And particularly when women are managing kids' birthday parties, clubs, pickups, swimming, everything outside, and then doing the same job as a male counterpart's doing, but yet they're earning 10 grand less. You know, it just made me sick when I thought about it. But then if I think of people that have asked me for pay rises, so we'll have someone go wanting a pay rise, it's the women who are not confident enough. I think a man who will come in to um, go, can I have a meeting, I'd like to talk about a pay rise, so no problem at all, sit down, he'll come into that meeting like it's a business deal. He'll be like, look at the turnover I've done since I've been working here, look at the figures that have gone up, look at the money I've saved you doing this, what an asset I am to this company. And you go, you are, you're doing really well. And a woman at the same level will come into that meeting and be <coughs> really embarrassed about asking, you know, find it the whole thing awkward and really, really embarrassed about saying, you know, can I have a pay rise or talking about it? And I think as women, and that's my advice to women actually, is we're worth a lot, but we don't tell people we're worth a lot. And I think we just need to be really confident and look your bosses in the eye and just say, this is what I've done since I've worked for you. I love working for you. I love the company I work for. But I do feel that I've brought this value to the business since I've been here and I deserve this pay rise going a bit higher and then you'll probably meet in the middle and get what, what you want. And I think that's the only thing I can think of where this 9% is. I think it's the confidence of women not pushing themselves forward to, to, to get what they want because women in business, I think, are fantastic. My husband, Ben... We employ lots of women management-wise. Weirdly, that's, that's how we're going, uh, you know, not on purpose, but they're the ones who've got the jobs, you know, and they're the ones that are keeping the jobs and staying in there. Um, and, and I think it's, it's just about a confidence in saying, yeah, I deserve it and I want it. And then going forward for us, I'm just going to finish it off, we very much love Brighton. We are Brighton born and bred and not related, which is really a good. Really, everyone, I but you're both from Brighton, but we're not cousins. So we're both from Brighton, our kids live in Brighton, go to local schools in Brighton, and, um, and you know, we, we're hoping to open another business, um, probably meant to be end of this year, but it will probably be early next year, knowing how builders go. And, and again, it's just growing the business forward and maybe getting an operations manager to help tidy us up a bit. But, uh, but we, you know, it, it's a great industry to be in, but it's a very hard industry to be in. Um, with high, you know, our biggest worry in our business is we are a very labour-intensive business. So <coughs> wage costs are constantly going up, pensions, um, um, business rates go up. You know, it's a very labour-intensive business. And then all the news, all these big boy chains going... It's going to be an interesting few years, and, and I think also with the VAT being where it is, I think it's going to be the business has been our business has made more money every single year, turnovers up, which is fabulous. 
profit is getting squeezed and squeezed. And we're kind of big enough to hold on, but it's a small little independence <coughs> I worry about because I don't see how, if they keep having to put all the wages up and the pensions up and do all this, I don't, and the business rate's going up, whether they survive if the big chains are struggling. And I think it'd be a real shame if we lose, you know, a couple of small restaurants, I think, because they're what make Brighton brilliant is the independence. So, um, but there, that's Brighton restaurants. <laughs> Now with our last speaker, um, you may have, well you will have all met her before hopefully having a gin and you may have seen her around Brighton, bit of an iconic brand and one of the Sunday Times' top 10 gins, uh, Cathy Caton. So some disclaimers, so all women standing up talking you have to start with a disclaimer. I hate going last because it's brilliant people have been in front saying incredible things. You had some, some fantastic things there. I want to thank you both for that. Particularly want to thank you, Georgina, for getting this going. And I think, you know, in my true Brighton hippie way, that actually what we can do to help each other and support each other and raise us all up together. Let's do it. Also, through the healing power of gin on those sides. <laughs> <laughs> as well. Um, so I'm going to try and keep an eye on the clock. I've got a background uh, as not seeing people's faces, but um, as a radio presenter, which means that basically, if there's silence, I will just keep talking. <laughs> so, and then stop suddenly at a minute. So that's, that's what's happened. Um, but, and I actually, for once, I actually prepared some, some slides and wrote some stuff and then left it at work. So this is what I've got. And um, I've done this based largely actually on the, on the things that people have asked when uh, I've been pouring you gins tonight. Um, I want to say thank you and congratulations to the woman who tried her first ever gin and her first ever gin tonic. really really nice one because life is just better with the, with the gin and tonic um, so I think uh, what, what I'd like to do is just yeah go through some things that people have asked tonight so I'm afraid if you've asked one of these questions you're going to hear it again and uh, you can correct me if I'm if I'm saying something differently or, or wrong in it um, I think the thing actually get asked most of all is is why gin and why Brighton gin the Brighton bit is easy because I'm Fairly sure that everyone else in the room will feel the same way. I'm absolutely so. I'm a blow-in. I don't get to be a born and bred. You're not my cousin. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> you never know. I mean, I, you know, I live just off North Square. You never know. Um, so, but I've got the passion of the of the convert. So, this is my 18th birthday this year of being being a Brighton. So, I am planning an 18th, which I hope will be better than my actual 18th. <laughs> um, and uh, I just think, you know, this this is just such a bloody amazing place. Try not to swear. That is all right, isn't it? Radio Four, for God's sake. Yeah, and I think one of the things I love so much about Brighton is that if you've got an idea and you're willing to put the graft in, and actually, so completely agreed with your making stuff happen is hard mm. statement. If you're willing to put the graft in, you can make stuff happen here. It's what's so brilliant about it. Go into any pub around town any night of the week, and you'll hear amazing things being plotted, planned, and talked about. All brilliant ideas. But it's the it's the idea is the easy bit. It's the doing is the is the difficult thing. So the idea for, for Bright Gin, um, and I know that I'm meant to talk really responsibly about alcohol in a public place. So <laughs> just if any of you are from something about the watchdog, you might want to pop the loo. <laughs> the, the whole 
idea for, for Brighton Jane came after I'd had a really, really late night uh, dancing around a friend's kitchen table in, uh, in Bedford Square and left, you know when you leave in the morning, like, mm, no, actually people are out running. <laughs> and I went for a run the same day that I'd had this very, very late, late night. And as, I mean, well, you know, this is some time ago, it's about six years ago, so it's, you know, it was more possible. <laughs> but as I, was, as I was kind of shuffling down the seafront, I was thinking, God, if I'd been drinking anything other than gin, I, there's no way I'd be going for a run. I wouldn't be off my sofa and I'd probably still be around at my friend Charlie's, Charlie's flat waiting to be kicked out. I just had a proper light bulb moment of thinking, God, gin is, first of all, the one thing that lets you get away with it. And Brighton, as we all know, is a place that needs to get away with it on a frequent basis. And for lots of the reasons that have come up in, in what both of, both of you have said, because this is a place where, as we know, actually the wages are pretty, pretty shit. People work really hard, they work really long hours, people are juggling family commitments, two jobs often, or all of those things combined. And actually, you know, this is, we do have to try and get away with it. Also, this is a place where people go out loads. People are really actively involved in their communities. Another reason why I'm so passionate about Brighton is like, oh my God, that's it, gin, Brighton. <laughs> but also they thought it was such an obvious thing. Because it, there are always bubbles and ideas as well. And I thought, oh, OK, well, you know, I spe- was speeding up my run at this stage, trotting, trotting back home. I thought, right, I'm going to get back. Should get on the interweb and see if someone else is trying to do it. And specifically, if they're trying to do a Brighton gin, and if they are, that's absolutely bless you, that's absolutely fair enough, and they'll have picked picked me to it, and no one was for some really bizarre reason. I think largely because we've been much much better at consuming booze <laughs> and partying hard than, uh, than than making it. But also, we've got a really you know a huge um, beer, amazing beer heritage, and what's happening with craft brewing around town, you know, there's just, there's so much going on that the spirits kind of thing hadn't happened. So, brilliant, okay, I'm going to register the name for Brighton Gin and then sit still and find out if I get a trademark. So I was busy commuting up to London at the time. I was like, actually, I'm not going to invest myself in something unless I know that I can completely arse about face is the, probably the technical way <laughs> of, of looking at this. And then basically me and my sister registered this trademark. I was like, oh my God, it's happened. Right, Brighton Gin. <laughs> How to make gin? <laughs> um, and luckily, due to the really, really crappy service on the trains between here and London, I had a lot of time to research and read and immerse myself in stuff, and also just make tons of mistakes. And one of the things that I'm really not fussed about admitting to at all, actually, is the huge number of mistakes that I've made along along the way. Tons of them. And I think if I'd known the, you know, the realities of some of the stuff that you have to do to be a food and drink manufacturer, it, it's such an old-fashioned industry, it's full of pitfalls and laws, and people kind of inspect you and poke around in stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm never, never got going with it. But as it was, Orta's still off the internet, because you can do those kind of things. You can pop onto eBay. And uh, yeah, bought a still, shoved it on my, my hob at home. I live next door to the Lion and Lobster in a really kind of <laughs> tiny pre, prefab 80s box. Low ceilings. You need quite high ceilings. <laughs> but, you, know, you find these things out. And you also find out when you're putting up your first fire with your oven gloves <laughs> that actually you could really do with like a fire blanket and some. But you know, you find out. <laughs> so, and as I was doing all this stuff, it was still. A, and again, it was very much kind of asked about face, so it was applying to HMRC for, for a licence, didn't have one, I was like, shit, I've got to bloody learn how to do this, this stuff. And also was making these, these disastrous distilling experiments, thinking, what am I going to do if the police knock on the door? You know, the, the, 
self-aggrandisement of it. It's like, as if they're really going to care. They're not. <laughs> what am I going to do? And they thought, I'll tell them I'm making lavender oil. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, the very first bit of Brighton, Brighton Gin, and it was such an exciting, amazing <coughs> moment when something that smelt like gin came off the still. It was born next door to the Diamond Lobster, and then we had the fire straight after. It's like, shit. <laughs> but it took a very long time, though, to get from something that smelt like gin, and that sort of magic, it's, you know, science and alchemy and amazing stuff, to something that you actually want to drink. So my cupboards are full of undrinkable booze I can't bring myself to. I can't find that loo. What's it going to do to the wildlife? <laughs> so I'm using it to clean. <laughs> and at some stage, I'll probably get around to, you know, redistilling it and stripping all the stuff out of it. I can't bear to get rid of it. But also, I quite like seeing the terrible mistakes. We're still living with one of our first we. It's the we thing. I like what you're saying about the yeah. we. Um, but this time I'm going to share it with an error. <laughs> so um, one of the first mistakes we ever when we ordered our first pallet of bottles, it was a really exciting thing. Didn't realise that they were going to turn up with 1,056 of them. And we had no idea that actually someone in a truck comes and leaves them on the side of the road and drives off. And then you have to get on the phone to your friends and go, can you bring some trays? It was loose as well. It was like, oh, man. Traffic jam, there was white, you're staring at a white van man, all shouting supportive comments. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really, really low point. We got all of these bloody bottles into where we were based at the time, which is just by the, um, at Brotis, uh, if anyone's a maker, maybe we might be based there. And then it was very exciting, and we got corks, and they were screw tops, and we have, we still have about 300 left of these, the wrong bottles. <laughs> and we'd spent what felt like a huge amount of money buying something that was wrong. So I learned then about definitely trust the people that you're working with. Also, do kind of measure measure twice, cut once. Um, or be prepared to have everyone really, really take the piss out of your mistakes for a long, long time <laughs> afterwards. Um, in terms of, so tons of mistakes, in terms of things that have gone well and stuff that we're proud of, um, I think generally just what's happened with Gin is amazing. When I was at university, admittedly, 300,000 years ago, I was totally laughed at for people like, oh, that's my man's drink, mm, old lady drink. And now you can't swing a duster without hitting a hipster who's got a very particular <laughs> taste in gin. People are really into the botanicals. Even, even getting people to taste it, the, the difference, the conversations that I have when I'm out and about doing tastings, what people know, what they're into, it's, it's completely different. And that's really really exciting and actually I don't begrudge the hipsters at all apart from their youth which I want to suck out of them <laughs> but it's but actually you know they've helped create this category that ranges from 18 to to 80 uh, that people are interested in it's brilliant and it's non-gendered which I really really love about it as well so actually I've, the confidence that women will have talking about gin and this is a, as a thing that they wouldn't necessarily have talking about whiskey or other spirits, even though they definitely know tons about it. Do you like it? Does it taste nice? What are the things that taste nice? Do you enjoy the feeling of the world just slipping away? A little, a little bit? Like, we're all experts and you should be confident in the things that we're, we're saying. Um, we've got an amazing, amazing team and that I think is the thing I'm most proud of because it has changed from even being able to say we've got a team is, a, is amazing. And they range from, so our youngest um, person is 20 and they go up to our, our waxer and labeler in chief so everything's done by hand from peeling the fruit smashing the sodding juniper berries <laughs> all the things that are really lovely when you're doing it 
at home once that then become quite challenging uh, trying to develop it. Everything's waxed and labelled by hand, and that's done by my mum, who's 75 at her next oh. birthday. She says she wants to be busy. Don't you like that? <laughs> so, but it's but you know it's an amazing thing to actually to have you know friends and family getting involved in something that still only has two full time members of staff on it. One of which is me, which is why I have gone grey and knackered. <laughs> it's hard work. It's really really hard work. Um, but I'm very proud as well of the fact that we've got um, at the last count a ninety percent female workforce. Uh, we work flexibly because why wouldn't you, actually, why shouldn't people be able to go and sort out school runs or work from home or do stuff that makes life, you know, livable? The more of that we can do, the, the better. Um, and I'm appalling at having any kind of work-life balance at all, but I love it as a concept. <laughs> I really want to try and make it possible for people to do that and, and not to worry about it as well, for it just to be, this is just how we, how we work. And also the thing about flexibility actually applies to everyone. So if, you know, someone goes, oh, that's a really good exhibition, but I can only get a ticket for a Tuesday. It's like, brilliant, fantastic, go and just go and do that. So trying to be open and accepting and build a culture, hopefully, that people are going to stick around in and with. Although I am looking for a new Waxer and Labeler, possibly a bit younger than my mum. <laughs> <laughs> something really different to do. Um, in terms of the, the, the what next, Roger, we have Stella, ridiculously brilliant year last year. We won the UK's best gin in the People's Drink Awards, which wow. was brilliant and crackers because we were only really available quite locally at that at that stage. <coughs> that was absolutely amazing. Um, and you know, we're just keen to see what we can do with this organic, vegan, handmade product that comes from plucky little Brighton. Just come back. I was in Hong Kong last week with these huge brands, so Hendrix and Beefy Tones, kind of. And we've come back and there are four people who have said that they'd like to import us and distribute us. And they were there with our hand-painted signs, looking absolutely ridiculous, wearing our Brighton gin printings. It's <laughs> trying to be subliminal. But so my, uh, my colleague and best mate, Ellie, who I went with, said to me, there's nothing fucking subliminal about this shit. So, I don't know, there isn't. Um, but yeah, we just, we want to really try and get out there and do what we can. We're into collaborating. Um, on tiny budgets, like so many things in Brighton, it's done completely on string and ceiling wax and passion and interest. Amazing, amazing food and drink scene that we've got going on down here. You know, the Ginger Man still on Norfolk Square is my absolute favourite restaurant in Brighton. It's Aww. brilliant. And I love that there are now so many others of great quality that have come up yeah. around it as well. It's just, this is a good, good time. And it's a good time to bang the drum for, for Brighton. Thank you very much. There will be some cheers. You can help yourself if you want some.